So I, I like freedom of speech. And you know who else has been exercising his freedom to post the most dumbest shit possible this past week has been Elon Musk. Everyone's favorite South <sighs> African Emerald Fail son. He's just been he's been posting so hardcore lately. He's just off on He one. has been posting, that's that's for damn sure. Yeah, he loves it. He's gone. He loves to post. And I love to read his posts. I'm gonna become a like Elon Musk business meme reply guy. And every time he like fires ninety percent of his employees or one of them gets vaporized in a hyperloop vacuum tube, I'll be like, Yeah, gotta spend money to make money. And um yeah, he in a way that's relevant to literature, he's come out as a fan of um stuff I was a fan of when I was like fifteen. He likes like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the Ian and M. Banks books, which I still like. Um, yeah. I still that? like Hitchhiker's Guide, too, honestly. Yeah. But well, not as of. Yeah, the film was very yeah. bad. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm -mm. The yeah. BBC one is good, the BBC radio play. Weirdly, I haven't seen that. Everyone says to see it. I've never even it's seen good. it. Yeah. Douglas Adams oversaw a bit of the uh, the voice casting, so. Oh, good. And I think he did some coaching on it, but. But uh, yeah, Elon Musk is a fan. He, uh, he also came out as a fan of uh, Isaac Asimov. That one stung me pretty deep. That one yeah. that one made me feel extra bad. That was that was the one that made me... Ooh. <laughs> Most people were pissed off about the um, Ian, Ian M. Banks one because oh, yeah. Banks was pretty avowedly a socialist and all of his yeah, friends was, went uh, on Twitter to say so. It was not hidden at all yeah. in any way. <laughs> Not a subtext in a book about no. posts in a book about like uh, post everything gay space communism. I I like how we're probably we're probably leaping ahead of ourselves here, but like it's it's literally a textual component that the culture is only able to achieve what they do precisely because a global anarcho communism allows them to properly allocate their resources in order to do so. That's that's literally how they get the space. Yeah. There are plot points about how more capitalistic cultures don't make it to space <laughs> because they squander their resources uh, and kill each other in useless war instead of achieving a utopia. Yeah. It's like capitalism ah! is the great filter in uh, the, the culture books. That's why space is like empty it's just all the everyone is capitalist and they all kill, killed each other by now oh, you saw that yeah i'm oh, just sorry. i'm i'm uh feeling angry at him right now that's well you don't understand his genius he's actually a utopian socialist um his words that's yeah that's why he has to fire all those working class uh people who and this is I think a thing that sometimes gets lost in the murk of discussing him, um, for better or for worse, the people who work for him tend to actually believe in his vision, which makes it yeah. They're like the reply extra. guys who got like um, upgraded. You've got to you start out interning in Elon Musk replies, then he picks you and he's like, "Come with me." 
if you want to which be makes in my it, factory, he's not Austrian. Which makes which makes it extra cruel. Um, the the uh, anti working class uh, maneuvering that he does pretty consistently because it's like these aren't these aren't random people. This isn't even just a generalized um, like capitalist shithead. This is someone taking people who believe in his vision and is for per only purposes of making more money for himself, stripping them of their jobs. Yeah, I mean, say what Does, he wants about Jeff Bezos. He's a piece of shit. But at least he, he gives people the dignity of knowing that they don't like him. There's a certain dignity in trudging around at Amazon warehouse every day, hating every second of it and looking at other people and going, yeah, I hate it here too. But, yeah, it's a standard working class thing. Is like you feel united by a shared rage, and when you at when you don't have that, now you're actually being betrayed. A boss can't betray you like a mere boss because you don't have any tie to them. Yeah, like your your interests <laughs> are diametrically opposed to them in every single way. But when you're in the Elon cult, and he's got a good cult leader name. When you're in his cult, he can truly betray you. It's like in Fire from Scientology. Yeah. Which is not a cult. I, I, I'm, I'm going to step carefully on Scientology because they can actually see you. Yeah, that's true. It's a religion, folks. Regular oh. religion. Very Just regular. Regular, normal uh, space volcano religion. That's a normal thing to have in a religion. Some religions prominently feature a dude who's his own dad. Some feature nuke volcanoes. That's fine. That's 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 religion, baby. Yeah. Some uh, prophets like kill people. Muhammad. That's true. A lot of blood, blood on his hands. Some prophets go on boats with a lot of young boys. What are you saying is better to uh, kill people than go on boats with young boys? That's I strongly believe that Christ probably did both of those things. He's pretty cool, you know, and, and he's a hippie, so, you know, they're, they're, they do gross sex stuff all the time. He probably went That's pre-Manson pre after he died. Like, his later, later like, post-death stuff, probably went, like, full-on Manson with the... Yeah, he... He's like, I'm gonna have a fucking freaky time, baby. sci-fi romp yes yeah, <laughs> well not really a romp <laughs> if you have a romp like this you probably should see a doctor <laughs> yeah i mean th this is yeah really made me think about like all the little aches and pains i have and whether they could be 
terrifying tumors that are actually myself growing inside myself. Uh, to replace you. Yeah, that that's... <laughs> okay, do, do you want to... You suggested this one, so I, I figure it's on you to uh, attempt to summarize this H.R. Geiger painting of a book. Okay, so... Um, uh, little history as I understand it of the book. Um, I don't know anything about the author. Um, haven't Googled anything. And this is semi-deliberate. Um, a friend of mine works uh, in Japanese translation, does a lot of work with Viz, uh, with uh, specifically like the manga, and, and also does uh, oversees a lot of translations of Japanese literature. In this case, uh, Sisfian. Um, he was... Uh, I think either the commissioning editor of this or just oversaw it. I forget which threw up a bunch of links to it before it came out and gave a brief description. Seemed really rad and wanted to dive in as uh, unprepped as possible. Just wanted to get a breath of fresh air. And that's partly because um, it's impossible to talk about Japanese media and specifically Japanese literature in America without addressing the fact that, um, the general topic of translation in literature. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, um, for a large chunk of literature's life, books weren't really translated. You just learned the language they were in for a whole bunch of technical reasons, such as paper's expensive and we have to go to war with that guy because he has a salt mine that we like or something. Um, then round about the 17 to 1800s, as translation starts to really pick up and not just be like a little niche thing that independent people are doing, um, the main language for Europe was uh, French, and then after that was uh, German. Mm -hmm. There is a bunch of Italian classical texts, but those typically got translated first into French, and then that's where you'd have the French versions of texts would get translated into English or the French versions would get translated into Spanish or the French language versions would get translated into Swedish or whatever. And same with uh, America as we started to become big is, you know, writers would go to France to try to break in with a French publishing house or with a London publishing house that could also publish in French. And that would get Europe to talk about you. None of these places are Japan, though. We weren't really prepped to translate Japanese and didn't even seriously consider it a major task worth doing until the American occupation following World War II. As a result, there aren't many, like some of the persnickety elements of translation, especially of art, is you don't want literal translations. You want the translation that captures the art of the novel the best. And that means you have to be fluent enough in the language and potentially in the work of the uh, original author to know where the thrust was going and fluent enough in art within your own native language, or, or at least the language you're translating to, in order to make those calls. That's why, like, Seamus Haney's translation of uh, Beowulf, which is far and away now the, the go-to translation, is not a literal translation, but it's considered very easily the best one, because he was an Irish uh, poet laureate who was fluent in Gaelic, and it, it reads way better than the classical one that a lot of people grew up with prior to that one. Mm -hmm. So 
So Japanese novels specifically don't make it to American shores that often. People like Murakami have an American uh, translator that they work with, like, hand-in-hand -hand while writing new material. Uh, we have certain works by, like, Mishima have made it over. Um, it's a huge shithead, but a fantastic novelist, which unfortunately yeah. don't intersect. Um, <laughs> uh, he's dead now, though, so it's, it's fine to read his work. He's dead. You can't support him. He dead died. In a really amusing um, way. Oh, Just, yeah. Google him. Google um, Mishima. You're going to have a fun time reading about how that guy died. <laughs> also, uh, watch the film by, I think it was by Paul Schrader. It's like his directorial debut. That's a good film. That has an interesting story about the film. Because it wasn't ever released in Japan because yeah. of Mishima's huge, just self-own. Just... Oh, yeah. He owned the living hell out of himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been, like, mad online and shouted about stuff, and people have just laughed at you, and you felt bad. Imagine that happened so much that you had to disembowel yourself. That's he, how, he owned, owned, how owned he was. He owned himself so hard that everyone, even people who hate his politics, have come around to respect him, because it was like, you know what? Motherfucker put his money where his mouth was. He, wow. Like... <laughs> Yeah. And he's dead, so you don't have to feel bad about saying that. You don't have to feel bad praising him. He died. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not like the anti-racism watchdog who's just like, oh, people don't like me anymore? I'm going to go away from Twitter for self-care. No, that, that guy put a knife in his guts and got his friend to, to chop his head off. That's, it was lit. That was, that was a good shit. I'm like, mad respect for that. That is crazy. Um, but, so as a result... Japanese novels are uh, a hard thing to come across. Not too many come to America, and uh, the running joke is that the number of translators of Japanese literature, so Japanese poetry and Japanese novels, are so small you could fit them in a dorm room. Mm -hmm. um, and they all, they all more or less know each other. Um, it's just it's a very, very very narrow field uh, because you have to be so familiar with the artistic nuances and textures of Japanese culture in a non-exoticized way, mm -hmm. which is to return very briefly to our long bugbear. Um, one of the biggest issues of even engaging with things like anime or manga from an American perspective is that hard filter of um cultural references and cultural uh, motives of art yeah. and this, uh, uh, interiority of art. Yeah, why is this person sad that person's chan? What's a cultural festival? What's, yeah. you know, all that. Uh... So, like, so what, and it's, uh, in the West, we derive most of our literary um, backing uh, from places like Italy, Germany, and France. Um, France being the absolute biggest one because of how they revolutionized um, fiction writing in like the 1700s. Um, and so we encounter these totally different modalities of writing that are more, I guess, Buddhist is how I might describe it. Yeah, so while the West derived a lot of its literary tradition from France in a very uh, event and conflict oriented uh, storytelling method of establishing a conflict and then resolving a conflict um, and showing as it branches out. 
uh, a lot of Japanese um, fiction, uh, at least prior to a lot of Western influence, tended to be closer to the picaresques uh, of prior to that literary revolution that happened in France, where it was just um, events that would occur centered around either a location or a cast of characters or maybe a theme. Um, and that ties into a lot of uh, cultural and uh, religious perspective that's sort of baked into the culture that is sometimes difficult to engage with on its own terms from our end. So a whole lot of barriers to Japanese literature, especially to whip-ass Japanese sci-fi and uh, horror. Um, like one famous one that made it across are the Ring novels, which you would not believe it without reading them, but are crazy cyberpunk novels. As in The Ring, the movie with the girl in the well and the videotape. Wow. I don't want to give away too much of those. They're a cyberpunk uh, metafictive uh, novel series. Um, fucking whip-ass. Just crazy good. And, and have a lot of interesting thoughts about... Um, interiority, our engagement with the world, perspectivism, things like that. So lots of cool actual thoughts going on. And so I read about Sisyphean in the little uh, blurb that my friend had posted prior to the book coming out. And it was uh, like post-Lovecraftian, uh, parentheses, non-racist, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, body horror, anti-capitalist, uh, cosmic sci-fi. And I was like, what? <laughs> um like a lot of fiction, it um, in Japan apparently it was a collection of um, it was a collection of light novels that, which is basically Japan's term for like novella, yeah. That are in this bound more or less as an omnibus with brief um, connecting snippets, hmm. uh, and that when reading Sisyphean and um, you can back me up on this you get the sense that it must have been published as multiple works somewhere about halfway through the second of the main, uh, like, trio of, of stories. Or no, there's, there's four yes. main stories. Okay, so you're going to have a hard time um, connecting these. I, I, was, I'm, was, I read this quite badly. I read this somewhat of like train journeys in 20 minute snips. <laughs> so um, there may be some more here that I missed out on. But the only time like you'll find a, um, say a character from story two comes in to story four. And I, I don't think story three has any uh, connection to any of this. Maybe I'm getting that token wrong. Um, story three being like, uh, a, a noir detective story set in H.R. Geiger's version of uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> and I'm not That's making that not up. a bad way to describe yeah. it. It's, uh... it's, yeah, it's a gritty detective story uh, that also is about a crustacean and his society of underseen friends. It's, um, yeah, it, it's not like anything you'll ever read, ever. 
Um, I mean, that, that alone, you can imagine, like, if some uh, Western sci-fi novelist, like um, Jeff Vandermeer, who loved this book, by the way, uh, if he came out with a detective story, gritty, 100% serious, but it's in it's set under the sea, and all the protagonists are various, like, lobsters and stuff. And, well, they're not even, like, identifiable as anything close to any terrestrial species. That would make waves, and people would probably make the same Spongebob jokes that I just did. And it's also set um, largely aboard um, giant, like, sea snails that are also, they're so big people make cities in them. And the sea <laughs> snails move incredibly slowly, but they also, like real sea snails, like, fight over a period of months. And it's, it, yeah, it's... You're not going to read anything else like that ever. It is purely located in Sisyphean. It's uh, it's an incredibly aesthetically driven novel, um, oh, which big time. Uh, which I think to some people reads as as a negative because of a a sense of lack of depth. But hmm. um, I don't. One, in general, I don't think that being aesthetically focused is necessarily a negative because I think that's the the primary motive of art. It's really, it's it's a quite weak move on the part of art when they start telling you deep shit because mm -hmm. it's like, dog, you're dumb. That's why you're writing a novel. <laughs> um, coming from one writer in the space of another writer, like there's a reason why a lot of novelists aren't the ones writing uh like advice columns. Oh yeah. It's it's like it's trying to get you to feel and experience something. Don't tell people what to think when experiencing it. You're probably going to do a really bad job. Um yeah. unless you're great at that. And then do it. But um yeah, the not. novel the novel is threaded uh thankfully there are, there are these brief uh connecting fibers between um between the stories, and there is a framing uh, prologue and epilogue that I think do give a strong enough through line to understand uh, what has happened and gives the book, along with the first basically novella in it, uh, gives it that very strong anti-capitalist thrust. Mm. The premise of the world of these novels, because the, the stories are more or less all different tales that occur within the same uh, world. World in the big sense, like capital W, uh, like synonym for universe, not planet, yeah. um, is uh, riffing on the notion of incorporation as both the capitalistic term of companies being bound together and the biological term of bodies being bound into one body by literally at points referring to the uh, mass conglomeration of different uh, interposed biological entities as an incorporation treated like a company. Um, the premise is that the uh, capitalism has run so deeply amok that it becomes effectively an inversion of Ian e M. Banks' idea of capitalism as the great filter, um, but like turned ugly. Is uh, these worlds 
uh, and it's it's implied, especially in the second story, that this is Earth, um, because there is a remnant of Japanese culture in uh, in the second book, where Japanese mythology uh, of of derived from Shinto still exists. They still reference it, but the biological shift has begun. Hey, so as usual, we uh, kind of forgot that we're supposed to have two songs in this episode. That's kind of happened a lot lately, so maybe we'll set an alarm next time, I don't know. Uh, also, apologies for the sound quality in this one. Ooh, boy. Yeah, I, I recorded it at a friend's house, and that's, you don't need to know about my shit, but it uh, yeah, bad sound quality at my end. And I've got like an expensive-ass mic, and Landon's just using his like laptop microphone. So it's it's just really unfair on me. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not feeling it at all. So I'm currently under a duvet to avoid um, sound reflections, uh, reverbs, uh, and uh, it's pretty hot under here. I'm not gonna lie. Um, a lot of my vision is, is a lot of it's red now. Um, probably going to be my last recording. Uh, anyone finds my body um don't touch my stuff because it, it's still mine uh but i'm gonna go out by playing a song by a band called constructive leaf uh they're out of italy they play like technical ass death metal uh very similar to gorguts uh, they do that really cool like double kick drum that sounds like an uzi uh that i really like so i'm um gonna be crossing the river leaf uh, shortly after I die of heat stroke recording this one last message for you uh, and then we're go- I'm going to play like uh, the band then I'm going to we're going to go back into the uh, poorly recorded episode
there is a recurring uh, entity um, in these stories referred to as uh, a Magatama, which is uh, a real kind of bead that we have um, from the very early Jomon period of um, uh, Japan, which is more or less uh, the prehistoric uh, Japanese culture from like uh, basically around the same time that like ancient Egypt would be around. Mm -hmm. um, there are these little fetal shaped beads. And in this world, Magatama are the thing that basically your soul and memory is imprinted onto physically in a weird kind of uh, biotechnology. And so long as that remains, it can be put into other bodies and other forms and you can manufacture biologically or you can manufacture the biology of a brand new body that's never existed before. And so long as you get that Magatama in there, it will be your body. And even you can even die because to them it's the body that dies, but the Magatama almost like stacks from altered carbon. I was just going to say, yeah. I've only seen the Netflix version of that, but... Uh, the book's really good. Yeah, the Netflix better than, the show was bad. It's better than the Netflix show, yeah. is what I'll say. Um, uh, it's that same idea that you can implant this. And it's a very old sci-fi idea, mm -hmm. um, but taken in a, like, Geigerian, uh, um, Lovecraftian bent here. And exists... Textually in here, um, in the first bit, not for the purposes of capital, it's just sort of like the weird Cronenbergian biological evolution of Earth. And by the end, uh, has is a way for workers to work forever. Hmm. Yep, they, they work themselves to death. The Mag Magatama just gets stuck in a new body that grows inside their own body. There's a point... Um, where the the worker in the first story, Sisyphean, thinks that he is pregnant, so he then immediately take, decides uh, to refer to himself as she, because you know, they've gone over that whole thing in the future, I guess. And um, and uh, it handles that bit pretty well. Yeah, like, there's an immediate that, pronoun think, shift. Yeah. Uh, it just gives a one sentence like, <laughs> uh, he was pregnant. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but TERFs would not like this book. It, it, it's, it's very uh, tr trans-inclusive, as much as a book about Cronenbergs can be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can accept people can change their gender, then, you know, you're, you're kind of 1% on your way to accepting the, the amount of bodily horror in this. It's, um... Yeah, so they... Yeah, the people... The first story, uh, Sisyphean, as you were saying earlier, uh, the way Japanese novels tend to be picaresque, uh, tend to not be plot-driven in the way um, like European novels are, but the first one, in a weird way, reminded me of those, um, in America, you probably went, yeah, 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 you will know, uh, Roald Dahl. The, um, oh, yeah, the yeah, we know about Roald Dahl. Yeah. His, his um, in addition to all the children's books he's quite well known for, he did a lot of um, very, uh, like, stories that have a, a twist ending. 
like uh, there was one which was pretty gross where uh, a woman was kept feeling really tired after going to bed at night and she was getting pale and lethargic and at the end of the story she dies of, of blood loss and it seems like it's almost going to be a vampire story and it kind of is because there's like a, a tick in her bed and it's grown it's just been feeding off her jugular when she lies down in her, in her on her pillow and there's this ju- the police find a giant tick in her pillow it's like the size of a, of a uh, football because it's just drained this woman of blood these all these stories of like where there's a twist ending that's kind of gross and unexpected that's kind of uh sisyphean there's a the twist in the end is that and i'm going to spoil this because it's a quarter way into the book is that this worker who you think is a a being that lives and dies just like any other one is actually just living and dying on this endless cycle over and over and is gives birth to its own new body inside of itself and um yeah i thought that was that was a really as a, as a self-contained story i think um sisyphean the story uh was first yeah it was first published and won a sci-fi short 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 story award in japan and based on that, he got the, he wrote the rest, and he continued these ideas and continued going in this world. Yeah, it's um. I think there there is enough to hang together when you uh. When you treat it as. A thematically bound novel, uh, anyone who's read a sort of contemporary. Uh, Western novels from like the 50s or forward, um, especially on the literary end, is not going to be too structurally shocked by the way that the novel um, hinges itself more on a a thematic center uh, and conceptual center rather than like a a plot or a character center. Although there is a loose implication that the main character is always the same and we're getting flashes of different lives through the Magatama. It's not, it's not, like confirmed it's not like you i i don't feel comfortable hanging my hat on that but there's enough in in the very scale and yeah in the last uh book i kind of got that idea that the the lasagna bit but that's gonna make sense for people who um who read it read it read it and look out for lasagna and uh yeah it it is strongly implied but um well, sorry, it's not strongly implied, I should have said. It's not strongly implied at all. It's, it's a, I think it's there if you're looking, and you may stumble across it, and I think I may have. But, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet money that that's 100% what you'd get if you did a very, very close reading of this and really, you know, made a big chart on your wall with all, like, red string going from different words and pictures and stuff. It's, um, and that, yeah. that I think, allows a, a decent um, digression into um, a really bad uh, reading technique that we're, we're all taught, at least in America, in, like, up to high school, of the exceptionally close read, mm-hmm. and even into college, that sometimes misses that uh, it, it feels like the proper way to read a book at first to fixate on little details and to think of to think of 
literature as a big puzzle that someone has uh, made for you to assemble. When one, I don't know too many artists ever who really consider the act of writing their novel like a giant puzzle that they're assembling in the manner that like a puzzle writer or like a riddle writer would would write something. That's not generally how people tend to approach them. A lot of it's more affect-based. And the notion of... It's sort of like... The trait that we're taught to never uh, indulge in nonfiction writing. So like if you're writing critical pieces of, of using gradient terms. Like semi or somewhat or almost. Or like words that allow... The same thought to be conveyed, but allow a gradation of um, intensity. Uh, sort of like the, the inverse of using very, of, you know, giving infinitesimal adjustment to to these feelings. That's the space where art lives, is these little hints that and we, uh, we consider now the more sophisticated novel is not the one that assembles everything, but the one that leaves enough of those hints and gradients around the edge that you can feel the shape of the story better than you know the shape of the story. That's sort of That's for as from, um, shitty. Uh, was, I think it was Hemingway about uh, him, yeah. like, icebergs and so on. That, I, was, I was about to, li- <laughs> I was literally about to say that, that the big um, literary technological innovation that Hemingway gave um, shitty like personal life aside, he's a terrible person, um, is that notion that we can imply a much bigger world than we give. Um, and that sometimes the power is in just like how in normal life it's something happens and you, you feel a thing about events that happen. The importance is not the event. The importance is the feeling is that likewise with novels, technically everything written down is event, even if it's emotional events. And what matters is not those events, but the feeling that sort of surrounds and encapsulates them. So the notion that Sisyphean has more than enough hints that this may be the same person, um, at least then is structurally uh, reified by the fact that you are reading more or less from a first-person perspective or a limited enough third person that you're following one person um, that gives that sense of like, oh, I'm reading the fractured memories of someone attempting to make sense of this horrible, horrible world they've lived in and experienced. Yeah, so there's a succession of horrible, different horrible worlds that they keep being born into. Like each one is a new and terrible level in a video game. And I mean, uh, it, it kind of that um, that icebergy effect. Um, it, it works with the the book's politics as well, because the the implication that uh, this is the same person living out all these uh, terrible different lives is kind of fits with just the how replaceable we all are in capital. It doesn't matter if it's me doing my job or the next guy. Anyone can be on a production line. Anyone could be in the Tesla factory. Um, you just got to kiss Elon Musk's ass enough in his uh, replies. You know, we're all just um, 
these things that can be placed into new roles. And um, yeah, we can we can be a, a, a undersea detective one minute. We can be a, a high schooler who becomes a priest the next minute. We can be an office literal drone the next minute. It doesn't matter in terms of capital. We just go from situation to situation. It's, this is the, this is the book about the gig economy. I figured it out. It's about uh, it's about the gig economy and Lyft and Uber. It, 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 just it, do, yeah, that's, what's funny gigs. is that that's that's not even uh, it's funny, but it's not a joke. That is pretty close to what this yeah. book is. Is but a gig is uh, a gig is ended in this world when you were literally killed on the job. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure there's been some uh, cyberpunk stories. Um, yeah, quite altered carbon is the obvious one where you know, death is not the end because capital still needs you. It's yeah. If you're a cyber badass like the dude who altered carbon, then hundreds of years after your death, you could just be brought back because we need we need you right now. And in this, you just keep on keeping on forever. Keep it, on uh, producing capital. It also, um, the politics are pretty hard to deny in this book from an experiential end when you get to a moment in the first book or the first like major story where an invading corporation starts literally invading and slaughtering um people and in, in an effort to disrupt business <laughs> it's very obviously a, a like a very angry riff on uh imperial capital wars of, of history <laughs> um but with the edit but with the added twist of even in the shitty logic of capital, there's a reason to not engage in those because you're killing potential workers that you could just enslave for your horrible slave. In this world, that is no longer there. You can kill and enslave the same person in yeah. any order you want for as many times as you want. So, like, it's they never, he never says the politics of it, which I think does him a lot of favors here. It's just, it just is horrible. And I don't know anyone who could read this and not look at it and go, this is bad. Um, <laughs> Even like the, the figure of the, the president, as in the corporate president, he's like this grotesque blob who uh, barks unintelligible orders of the worker because he can't, he's, he's mutated beyond the point where he can actually use human speech. He's, he's, like the most on the nose caricature of a capitalist fat cat ever. He just needs like a top hat and a cigar, and you're done. He's he's every boss you've ever had that gives you like meaningless uh, orders in business speak. It, it kind of harked back to um, bullshit jobs. Like this, uh, the worker has the ultimate bullshit job. Yeah. <laughs> and he's making, he's doing this incomprehensible stuff that seems almost like ritualistic but also medical but also like uh, the tail end of a Cronenberg film and yeah it's just in one point it's referred to as a rite as in like a religious rite and yeah it's just 
It's the ultimate bullshit job. It's and it's it's made more bullshit by the fact it cannot be escaped by any means at all. They even sometimes talk about how they will occasionally be biologically altered specifically to fit their jobs, including the inability to not do their jobs. Hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's a tremendously bleak, um, it's a tremendously bleak novel. This is definitely, uh, there's sort of a wave right now with how horrible the world is of people wanting uh, positive or uplifting work which i can follow i personally think it's a little bit um it's a little bit cowardly when you start phrasing it literally as i i look at art as a way to escape the terror of the world it's like the minute that you articulate that thought you've not articulated a healthy or a good thought that Mm -hmm. should be one that you start to walk away from not that there is not a place for art that soothes but um it's sort of like it, it, if we held that, we we never would have gotten hardcore punk, or mm. we never would have gotten heavy metal or things like that. Um, but yeah, this this book was like like grinding a cheese grater on my on my <laughs> brain. It was just like yeah, it it, it it's like looking at every uh, weird technical death metal album cover. And it's illustrated too. I should should point it out that he um, he's a graphic designer by trade, and he illustrates this as well. And any of these could be on the cover of uh, Gorgut's album. It, it's all uh, the story of a Zdzislav Basinski painting. It's like someone used that as inspo, and uh, yeah, look look his his work up because it's it works really well with. Um, uh, Love that. Yeah, and it's on a ton of different album covers. And if you ever, like... I, I don't know if it's just me who does this, but when I see a really abstract metal album cover, like um, uh, the last Bell Witch record, Mirror Reaper. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it, got people at home, there's a, a figure on a mountaintop looking at this, what looks like a red-shrouded, gigantic Godzilla-sized figure coming through a mirror. And I kind of, when I saw that, I just couldn't help but try to imagine what is actually happening in that story. Like, yes. Who is that guy? What is that thing? Why is, why is any of this happening? And you get the same thing in a Baczynski uh, picture. Just pick one at random and just think about what could actually be occurring here to have made this situation that we're looking at. It uh, it's one of the big things that draws people to to metal is that strong um, a strong enough aestheticism that even a glimpse of it starts to imply this broader, if abstract and horrific, uh, like universe in which things are occurring. Yeah, um, both vis- yeah, visually and on the level of music, because you could yeah, it's fairly rare in extreme music you can actually hear what they say they're saying. So, yeah, like I, yeah. I, I tried to convey to people a lot that the one of the bigger things in in music like this, and it also applies to progressive music, is specifically things like the album art as a way to capture um, 
like a like we were talking about to to embroider psychologically on the experience of it so that what live the reason why you're doing it is that embroidery it's the way that it's the thoughts and images that your brain conjures while hearing these sounds and seeing these images it's why like the new tomb mold record like everyone in the death metal world is just gaga over it because it's like oh my god you, you nailed it yeah. um, <laughs> that's why we're here baby <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's um yeah and even though sisyphean is a, a narrative with characters and a plot four plots it kind of it feel it, it, give, it gave me the same feeling and maybe it's just because yeah. i read it badly on trains maybe that's a good way to read it because it gave me that feeling but I, I felt the same way reading this as i did looking at buksinski's uh, art or even you know listening to to extreme music of any kind, noise, even like punk yeah. stuff. It's I uh I, I've recommended it to people sometimes as uh and I'm sure you've run into this as well when you are uh either in polite company or uh or n the company of normies as <laughs> the other one. I don't consider normies polite. No. They are beneath me. Uh they may not be beneath everyone, but they are definitely <laughs> beneath me. Um, their existence is it's, incorrect. It's true. They're um they're wrong, uh. But uh, uh, is you start running into the question of like what what is it that I see in this that they're not seeing? Uh, not not in a derogatory way, but like I know what I'm experiencing, and I know that they're not experiencing that. Where is the gap? And maybe they won't like it, but can I fill that gap in so that it becomes legible? Because hmm. you know, we all want our passions to at least be legible to the people that we care about. That's yeah. a pretty normal human thing. Um, and this novel, I think, fits in that small camp of, like, when you like weird, fucked up psychedelic art, it's hard to look at something like Naked Lunch or the Illuminatus trilogy and not go, yeah, that's the book version of what I feel when I'm hearing, like, a Ronzi Pazuzu just, like, trip out for the devil. Mm -hmm. um, Sisyphean feels, as a novel, what, like, things like death metal feel like to mm -hmm. me. Exactly. Like, yeah. it's a very bodily feeling, but also a grotesque, like, inverted bodily feeling. Um, the, it's not... You see sometimes, like, punk kids refer to it as like you're mad about church or you're mad about your and it, it it's not that it's hard sometimes to articulate but i think sisyphean does a really good job of the oppressive wicked brutalist bullshit of the world mm -hmm. like metal isn't about Extreme metal, especially things like death metal, aren't necessarily about indulging those feelings as they are about reflecting them. Yeah. I mean, like showing back the image of the world that you feel inside rather than saying, like, I endorse this. It's more like horror isn't really about endorsement. Horror, by its modal nature, is saying this is bad, but look at it. Um, yeah. And it's saying people kind of don't understand about metal or, or like, goths. Like, people yeah. imagine goths want people to be sad. Goths are people who are sad and they want to they look like it. They want the aesthetic of sadness on their body. Yeah. 
and uh, they, method is the they same. are trying to show as opposed to just like the show don't tell thing gets with its CIA ties gets overblown. <laughs> there is a use to it. Um, otherwise, this is sorry. Oh, yeah. So we sometimes get the whole like, oh, all show don't tell was made up by the CIA in order to, and it's like, they did help push that. Ooh, they did definitely yeah. help push that. But socialists also use show don't tell. That's sort of the, the emotional storytelling of finding the right balance. If you tell someone this is horrible and now I'm going to give you a glimpse of the experience within that so that you can know how horrible it is. Yeah. And and maybe not so you can become desensitized to it, or you can excuse it, or even enjoy it, but just because, like we said with workers, it's fun when you're on the Amazon production line to say, man, I've had a shitty day. My feet hurt. I've got to run around. I've pissed in four bottles today. I've had a shit day. You have a shit day? And it's like, it, it's, it's the notion of knowing in both the occult and the experiential sense. Technically, they're not those aren't different. The occult is just about experience. But um, like capital K knowing is that that's the or thing gnosis. that drives a lot of radical. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that drives a lot of uh, radical politics is that once you know with a, with a capital N, once you've achieved or a capital K, once you've achieved gnosis of the suffering of trans people in this world, you can't ever turn back. That just, it doesn't turn off in you. Like, you're always... This comes up in Buddhism a lot, too. Because there's yeah. a lot of back and forth between these ideas and East and West. Yeah, like, uh, and that, that's sort of another misunderstanding that a, a, a Buddhist friend of mine and I talk about a lot, that um, people, when they run into the notion of acceptance within Buddhism, is acceptance is the Buddhist term for gnosis or for knowing, is... Like, when you accept that there is a racist brutality in the Western world directed towards brown people and black people, you can't ever unsee it. It's not accepting in that you think it's good and you just, what it's, it's more, you are no longer denying that it's there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's acceptance of reality as opposed to denial of reality. It's not, it's not acceptance in the way that we think uh, typically of the word. Um, and yeah, likewise, there's a, a big push of that within metal in general and uh, the aestheticism of, of goth stuff, uh, like death consciousness in general as sort of a bigger psychological push uh, is built around that. It's not going like be thrilled with the fact that you'll die someday, but more don't live in gross abject denial of this because you will start developing some really bad pathologies. And when that hammer someday breaks through and you get some really bad news about you or a loved one, it'll fuck you up way more if you have not at least partially accepted the reality of this. Yeah. Um, and Sisyphean's built around a lot of the same concepts that because it's a horror novel, that's how horror works, is um, not exposure to be thrilled, but, you know, to... It should make you emotional, mm -hmm. is, is really the thing. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, like I said, I, I think this, this is a good choice for this show because it's it's one of the most metal novels I've read, and there are not many that I can honestly say fit the bill. Yeah, like when when I wrote for a uh, cult nation back in the day, I was thinking, okay, let's write about some metal novels that I've read. Oh wait, I can think of maybe Naked Lunch, maybe. No, that's not really. And yeah, I couldn't think of much because there's not that much out there. Now, you know, Sisyphean, it, I think it definitely, definitely is. Like if, if you understand the aesthetics of metal, you'll understand the aesthetics here. And you'll probably go through a similar experience to me, feeling like I'm looking at an album cover while reading this. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's not hard going, because it is. And it's, it's very simply written, but it still manages to be really hard going. And there's a fair few uh, neologisms you need to understand. I, I didn't even know about the um, uh, Mag- Magatama, was it? The, yeah. The, the little beans in people. I didn't know that was a reference to um, Japanese archaeology. Um, did not know that. So, good catch on that one. That's improved my understanding. But um, let's cap off the episode with some with some real death metal. Um, I know I said I was going to do uh, chemist, but I'm going to do coffin birth by extremity instead. Um, <laughs> every, Hell yeah! Because <laughs> every, everyone's everyone's probably listened listen to chemist by now. Uh, if you haven't, go listen to them because they're so fucking good. And um, yeah, they're really good. Yeah, and start I start with Hunted, but this new one's great too. Yeah, they're all great. Uh, also, stuff yeah. uh, releases today um, is an album I fucking love. Um, all bitches die by Liquid Nata. Uh, it's a noise album, yeah. but it's brilliant. It's uh, one of the most emotionally raw things. And if you think like reading Sisyphean or listening to death metal is an emotional experience, you need to get yourself some of the all bitches die. Because it's, uh, it's a whole a other cup of tea, get some headphones, sit in a corner alone, and get really emotionally fucked up on that record. It mm. is a wicked powerful record. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to the point where if you're going through some shit right now, don't listen to it. Because yeah. it, it may even make you worse. It, it's it's raw as fuck. And uh, listen to it right after a good therapy session. Damn, you're gonna have a good ass therapy cry. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it did make me cry at some points. And there's not many albums I can talk about that with. It's uh, it's raw as fuck, and I've not experienced anything that um, uh, Kristen Hater, who is behind the project, has experienced. I can't claim that. But it's it takes you there, and doesn't and leaves it's you conveyed. There. Yeah, well. it's yeah. It, it, that just came out on Profound Law today, uh, a remastered version. It's been out on Bandcamp for a while. Uh, definitely check that out. It's amazing, and she's on the new um, Body record as well. So if you like, oh yeah, if you like that, she... <laughs> which new Body record they <laughs> dropped too? Oh yeah, the, the one I was gonna say the one there so isn't with. Um, uh, Uniform. But it is with uniform, so... Well, kind of. It's with, with half of uniform. Um, 
It is? Yeah. Uh, yeah, didn't, 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 didn't you recognize the guy's voice? It's pretty distinctive. Um, He's a guy who has like I, a kind of uh, John, uh, Johnny Cash, uh, kind of John Lydon-esque voice. On uh, I Fought Against It But I Can't Any Longer? Yeah, that's a, that's a different uniform. Oh, I, I just, I just assume, I assume they just call in famous friends all the time and I, I don't even try to <laughs> listen do. for them anymore. Yeah, that's, uh, um, that's one of the guys from Uniform. Um, he's not the person who's doing gorgeous singing, that's Kristen Ada from Liquid Nata. He's not the uh, guy who sounds like a cockerel, that's the chip kid, the main guy from the body. He's the guy who sounds kind of like... Kind of like if John Ly- John Lydon was really bringing it, like if he came back <coughs> over the last like fifty years and just got angry and just decided I'm gonna blow my lungs <laughs> out on this one record for these two guys who dress in robes and they're weird and they have a lot of guns. I'm 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 really shocked that so as much as I avoid um, sort of the fan base of the body, they just have a kind of obsessive. Internet forum-esque vibe. The 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 it, bit it's like a I, on Facebook thing? at least. Oh, okay. I, I I I'm a member of a couple Facebook like record um groups that just hey here's some records. Anytime someone brings up the body, they get really weird about it. Um, but band is absolutely fucking great. Like mm. everyone rightly loves the body. I'm really shocked that after all those honestly really sick and very varied um collaborative records they dropped starting with um i shall die here with which was produced by the Haxing cloak but he also had slight songwriting stuff mm. it doesn't get credited as that anymore but when it first came out i remember that was a really big deal of them working with the Haxing cloak guy um but yeah that they dropped down to just the two of them and embroidery from famous friends and uh yeah dropped the best fucking record of their career um I'm also shocked at how they can constantly be cranking out work, and it sounds good every time. Yeah, they haven't released a bad record. Like, they haven't. Yeah. But, um, yeah, enough about the body, because A, they're the future to this podcast. I've played it, like, four (laughs) times. Uh, Everyone loves the body. If you're listening to this, you probably know of the body and love the body. (laughs) It sounds weird when you say that. But, uh... You know and love the body. Sounds like say John, <laughs> sounds like, uh, John Claude Van Damme in his uh, fitness videos. Yeah, you know and love his body. That's, uh, you know the body. You love the body. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, they should sample that on the next record. You could be a, a body collaborator. <laughs> Everyone will eventually collaborate with the body on our albums. In the future. Everyone think... will have a 15-minute release with the body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, this isn't the body. This is Extremity, and they're from Oakland because, of course, they're on twenty bucks spin. Because also, of course, uh, they rip shit. They yeah, they they rip some shit. It is off an album called Coffin Birth, and wasn't there like a news story about like someone uh, like archaeologist found a dead body and it had like a a dead baby coming out of it? And it was like really grim and stuff. Uh, this is an album probably about that. 
and it's by Extremity, it's on 20 bucks spin. It, this, is this song is called Grave Mistake. Yeah, great. get it? It's a, it's a pun, a play on words. And um, <laughs> it's on that album, it's really good. Go check them out, they're, they're so good. And um, yeah, come back next week. I don't know what we're going to be talking about. Um, Some shit. Yeah, we're going to just, we're just spitting bars. And uh, yeah, could just, we're gonna go hard on some beats. Yeah, <laughs> now that I'm in uh, Britain, I can be exposed to grime, and uh, I've discovered that grime is better than hip hop. Um, like, that is a very British thing to say, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, I believe it. Right, um, we'll talk about that on the next episode, but uh, giving people something to kind of latch on to that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So go listen to Extremity and come back next week and listen to Extremity.